today. <laughs> we are going to be looking at starting in Matthew 21. Now, we're looking at Monday and Tuesday. Now, we know in Matthew 21, the beginning, uh, we have the triumphant entry. And so Jesus, on Palm Sunday, enters into the city of Jerusalem. He brings with him a large crowd. Um, all estimates are that this was hundreds of people that were marching. As Jesus, uh, I don't, he's performing miracles, he's gathering a crowd. Um, it almost was more like an invasion. I think sometimes we think of just the 12 disciples and Jesus on a donkey, and he's just kind of riding in, and there would have been hundreds of supporters and followers with him coming with him into the temple. And so that already starts to cause a buzz. And on that day, he walks into the temple. He comes in. Um, he kind of checks the temple out. He kind of looks around. After he's, the entry happens, it's Palm Sunday. He's riding on a donkey. He looks at the temple, and then he leaves. And he goes off to Bethany. Then he comes back on Monday. And this is when he goes back to the temple, and he does something even more um, irritating to all of the religious leaders. He cleans the temple. So at first, we have to kind of hang out in the early verses in 4 and 5. He said, he went into the temple, we see this, he says, go in the village in front of you, immediately you'll find a donkey, get the donkey, he rides it in. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so if you have a, a Bible that has a little marks in the bottom, it tells you what it references. It has a little letter B by mine. So I always, sometimes I think we pass over all the numbers and the letters that are in your Bible. And I just want to remind you that it's good to look at those sometimes. So this tells you this comes from Zechariah 9.9. So you know what this, where this prophecy is coming from. That Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. So this is Jesus becoming, as we've seen in his ministry, he's been kind of quiet. He's been privately preparing the disciples. He's been these full out destroying all mystery. I am the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of prophecy. I am God in flesh. You have to deal with me now. And he's been secretive about this. He's kind of hidden. He's taken off. He's when people try to throw him off a cliff, he leaves town. He walks across the water to get away from crowds. It's been very different because he had a, a ministry to the people to stir people up. He had a ministry of miracles to help people see who he was, but he also had a very private ministry that was to the disciples. And we missed that, that a lot of his ministry, the three years with the disciples, was preparing them for when he was gone. And he told them over and over again, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be here. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And they didn't listen. They didn't get it. But the whole time he's preparing them. And even in this last week, there's times of public ministry and times of very private ministry where he's continuing to prepare the disciples. He knew what was going to happen. He knew all of this was coming. I think sometimes we read it as the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, the disciples. They were just kind of plan B. Jesus was plan A. And those, those rebellious Jews who hated Jesus and those Romans, they killed him. And so plan B was disciples. The disciples were always plan A. Plan A was always to die for the, the sins of the world. His death, burial, and resurrection was always the plan. And his plan was always to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, for us, the disciples, and then us as continuing in that, those generations upon generations upon generations to share the truth of Jesus to the world. It was always his plan. So don't ever think that this was a shock. Like Jesus is hanging out, having the Last Supper. He goes to pray, and all of a sudden, oh, the Romans are coming. What do I do? He knew exactly what was happening. So we see a fulfillment of prophecy in 4 and 5. 
Then we move to 12 to 13. So this happens. It's Palm Sunday. He leaves. He goes out, and then he comes back. Jesus entered the temple on Monday morning and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, John mentions a a cleansing of the temple earlier in Jesus' ministry. So this would have been the second time that Jesus cleanses the temple. There's a, a deeper description in John when he cleanses the temple earlier where he sits down. It's a very contemplative cleansing. He's braiding a whip. He makes a whip and cleanses the temple. So this is Jesus, the first day, Palm Sunday, people come into town. He then leaves and goes to Bethany, hangs out there. He comes back, and then he cleanses the temple. Now this, I think sometimes we get this idea in our heads that cleansing the temple is like cleansing the foyer. We understand that there were people selling pigeons. They were selling things to sacrifice at the altars in the temple. The people travel. If you're traveling from far away, you're not carrying a live pigeon in your pocket. That's kind of difficult. I don't know if you ever, I've never tried that. Who am I kidding? But you're not going to have your goat coming along. Like, so they, there, was, there was a practicality to it that makes some sense that you, you need to come. You're a pilgrim. You're coming with just a coin purse. You're traveling long distance. You're walking the whole way. You're not going to deal with this animal coming along. And so you have a place to purchase things to then sacrifice to fulfill your sacrificial duty. That makes perfect sense. But what had happened is it become more like a mall. It, it, instead of being a, a reverent, here's pilgrims, here's your offering, please go. You, I could just, I don't know this, this is conjecture, but if you've ever been to another country where it's like you're bartering and you're trying to get with people, and if you've been, ever been to Mexico or been to parts of the Caribbean, or if you've been over to Europe and parts of the, even the Middle East, there's all, you never pay the, the face value. You're always like, well, it's $10. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you three. Oh, that's an insult. And you walk away. Okay, we well, have about five. So there's this bargaining happens in the culture. You can imagine a temple supposed to be holy and reverent, pilgrims coming, and people are bartering with the methods of being free from sin. So it angers Jesus that these people are stealing from, you're stealing from people, you're robbing them of their holiness, you're rob are their attempts to please God with sacrifice. You're just making it a money issue. Now, I wanted to show you some pictures. Um, This is a scale model of, um, if you want to cut a couple lights, maybe. So when we went to Israel, there is a museum um, that's very much, there's all kinds of stuff from Jewish history. And so when you go, there's a scale model outside. So those are people standing, okay? And an organization, it was at a library, and they moved it and put it here. They spent painstaking time getting the details of homes and details of the scale. And so this is made to scale of the city of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus and the temple. It's actually, they're, they're trying to highlight the period of Herod. And so that's the temple in the center. So you see, these are all the houses. And here's houses. And this is the temple. Look how massive that is. So the actual temple is here. This is the Holy of Holies. Only few people can come in here. Like you, you have to have your sacrifice. You have to come in. Um, you, this is the courtyard in which the selling of stuff would have happened. These two paths here on both sides. It wouldn't have been inside here. It would have been all around because you can't have that happening in the temple. You had to be cleansed as you go in. There's all these processes that you have to go through to get. This is the Holy of Holies. Only certain people can go in here. So it would have been this whole area is where Jesus would have walked in. And so if you go to, uh, 
should have blown that up earlier. So you can kind of see how big, how massive this is. So you had the outer courts, you have the outer gates, Gentiles can come here, and then you had to have your body, you would then come in here, and you would come in and do your sacrifice, and this is the Holy of Holies, only the priest can go into, and so you have this whole area. So if you're out here selling animals, that's not considered clean. So you would not have that happening in here inside this inner court. You wouldn't have that happening in this part. You definitely wouldn't have it happening here. So for the money changers, this would all have been in this area. So for Jesus to cleanse the temple, he would have driven out everyone from the whole area. It would have been like an occupying force coming into the city gates, coming into where the, and he takes up residence in the whole area with the disciples, with his, not just the 12, but all the disciples. They come in, they drive out everyone screaming, yelling, going crazy, den of robbers, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like lowly little Jesus slowly walking in with his pure white robe, his long flowing brown hair and standing there saying, you den of robbers, get out. I'm like, yes, sir. It would have been a massive ordeal that would have been spread like wildfire in the whole city. It would have spread like crazy. Someone's taken over the temple. Who is it? Is this teacher named Jesus? And what's he doing? And why is he? It would have been complete chaos. The leaders would have been furious. Who is this teacher who comes in and thinks he knows everything? Who does he think he is? So he comes in, sits in there for most of the day, occupies most of it. Um, if you look at the scale model, the other end, you can, these red houses are significant. When you see red roofs um, in any of these pictures, that's the place of wealth. So you have all of these areas down here, which would have been more smaller, kind of, um, this would have been the, the wrong side of the track. Above and below, this is um, Herod's temple. This would have been his palace. It would have been his house here. Um, then you have all of these things. You see, this is the place of wealth. It's also geographically significant because this would have been a flat walk from here to here to get in to this gate to go in. And so you would have had all of this, like, locations, everything, right? Those of you who have done some real estate. And so you want the flattest, easiest areas to live your life? Well, that's where all the wealth existed was on this flatland. You get down to these other areas, and it's very hard. It's a very strenuous walk. And so then this would have been the city of David. This would have been the original where David's palace would have been down here. And so you can see, like, even um, when David is on his roof and he looks down and sees Bathsheba, well, it's because it's a, it's a decline. He's in his spot, and he sees her on the roof of another building. That's how he sees her. It's not like he had a skyscraper. It's a hill. Does that make sense? Here's the pool of Siloam where you would try to go to be healed. Um, so you have all these things happening. And I just wanted to see the geography because it's significant here in a minute. Does that all make sense? This would have been entries into the temple um, from these sides. And so um, here are all kinds of, we'll get to it next Sunday night. There's all these ritual um, baptistries here. They're called mikvahs. And so as you go, and that's what most of this is for, is you have these mikvahs. So as you're going to the temple to, to worship or to do sacrifice, you would get baptized going up. You would cleanse yourself as you go. Um, and that was pretty common practice. And so Jesus uses that. John the Baptist uses that as a continuation of the tradition they already knew as a baptism into a new faith. Uh, eh, we'll talk about this later. Okay. 14. 
And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did I say that? Indignant. Dang it. Uh, and they said to him, do you hear what these, what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you ever read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. I said, I said Bethsaida earlier, didn't I? It's Bethany. Um, and if you look again in your Bible, I'm just trying to give you a little Bible 101. Uh, mine has a little note, and I come down here, and I look at it, and I go, what's he saying there? Oh, that's from Psalm 8. And so Jesus continually quotes the scriptures to his disciples, and he quotes them back to the religious leaders. And he tells them, so picture this. He takes over the temple, people show up, and then unclean people come to him. The lame and the blind are not allowed in the temple to give sacrifice because they're unclean. And during this time, Jews would take anybody, would say that anybody had a physical deformity, had an abnormality, had something wrong with them, they were unclean. And it was because of sin. That sin made you unclean. And so sin led to blindness. It might have been the, blind, the sin of your father, the sin of your mother, but your sin led you to have a physical ailment. And so that's what they would believe. It's what they preached, what they taught. And so for Jesus to then occupy the temple, drive out all the people who are trying to give these, make money on sacrifice, and then as the lame and the blind show up, he heals them and says, go ahead in there. You talk about, like, he's poking the bear, and I love it. Like, he, he knows exactly what to do. You, you have made a barrier for these people to be close to my father. You've made a barrier for these people to sacrifice at the temple. Guess what? You're healed. Go worship. And the religious leaders are hanging out there like they've lost all control. This man is showing up. He's healing people. He's performing and right before their eyes. They can't even see that this is the Messiah because they're so hardened and jaded and he's upsetting their entire system. He's essentially calling them out that they don't know the word of God, even though they call themselves as the Pharisees, the ones who know the Bible, the, the Torah, better than anybody. And he's making fun of them. And then he leaves. Oh. He's, like, have you ever, have you ever been in a, um, like a verbal battle with someone, and you one-up them? And then you just walk away. And you leave those people going, I should have said this and I should have done that. Why didn't I say this? And did you guys ever watch Seinfeld? Some of you. When George Costanza would get his last joke and he'd like, I'm out. And he'd walk away because he wanted to end on winning. Like that's what's happening. Jesus ends on a note. He leaves them frustrated. Then he walks away. He doesn't engage in debate. He doesn't engage. He just does it. And he goes off to Bethany. And when you look at where Bethany is, this isn't a short hike. Bethany is to the east. Um, see where the arrow says, to Bethany? He goes off to the east. He leaves. And so he does all this in the temple. He's occupied the temple. He's irritated everyone. He's healed people. He's, he's messed with everything that they hold to be what they believe to be the way to do things. And then he says, I'm out. And he goes to Bethany. He takes off. And can you just imagine the stewing of these people? There would have been a wonder of the crowds. Who was that? It was Jesus. Look what he did. He healed. He drove out. He, he drove out the oppressive spending. of. Like, they would have been amazed. And the leaders like, who is this guy? We're going to get him. 
And so they want him dead. They want him out. They want to get rid of him. But he leaves and goes to Bethany. And you're going to see this pattern where he's in the temple, he's in the city all this week, and he goes off to Bethany. He then also goes to where the upper room is. He goes back and forth. He goes to um, the Mount of Olives. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's walking all over. But this isn't, I think sometimes we feel like this is like walking to the stadium. It's not. It's a deep valley. So this is the Kadron Valley or Kadron Valley. People say it differently. I don't know what's technically right. Um, and so, like, this is the Mount of Olives. We'll talk about that later on in this series kind of thing. But you have this deep valley that you go down into and you come up. And this is modern-day um, Jerusalem, so there's houses there and um, dwellings. And then these are, you can't see them. We'll blow it up some other time. But these are graves. They're tombs. And so you have this deep valley. Now, this is 2,000 years after Jesus. There used to be a river running through here. And over the years, this corner was the landfill. And so people put their trash there, threw their refuge out there. Um, it's built up over time. And even then, like we hiked this path and we went up there. And it was quite the hike. It wasn't like an easy walk. It's a sidewalk, so it wasn't that hard. But it, was, it wasn't like just walking over to Taco Bell. It was a long hike. So for him to make this hike and go over wouldn't have been this easy thing. But So it's very purposeful. Jesus is leaving the city, letting the pressure cooker build, and then he's going to come back into the city. So this, when you look at the Cadron Valley, it's not, um, there, there's no river in there anymore. It's either dried up, gone under, it's been filled. Um, it's been totally, it's totally different than it was 2,000 years ago. When you take into the, the Byzantine era, from the Romans to the Byzantines to the, um, when the, the Muslims took over, it's been completely, it's, the landscape's changed. But Jesus would have been, Hiking down the hill, up the hill, going off to Bethany. It's a very deliberate, I'm out of here for a while kind of situation. So he's open-handed smacking the authorities. Like he's just, that's what, I, that's what I want you to see is that it's been very private, very very subtle, growing in his, his stature, growing in people knowing that he's the Messiah, kind of growing in, in teaching his disciples. And these are very bold, in your face, I'm not playing around anymore. This is Jesus knowing he needs to go to that cross and die for the sins of the world, and he's going to make it happen. Don't ever think that it was a surprise and a shock. He did it for you and for me. And we see in Hebrews, he did it out of joy. He did it out of love for us. So we continue on. We're skipping a lot. In 18 and 22, in the morning, as he's returning to the city, so he's coming back from Bethany, he got hungry. Amazing. Fully God, fully man, he was hungry. If he was just a spirit, apparition, angel, he wouldn't need food. Jesus needed food. So anybody that says, well, he was just, you know, he was never really fully man, they don't. Just tell them to read this. Okay. In the morning, as he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this isn't name it and claim it, just pray it and it happens. Jesus is trying to get them to see that if you stick to the plan, Stick to what I'm telling you. Stick to what I've taught you. Trust in what we have, what's going on. Then you're going to topple the religious leaders. And remember what's happened. He's just open-handed slapped the leaders in the temple. 
He then walks by a fig tree and curses it. And we're going to see as he addresses it when he walks back out of town later, the fig tree is the religious leaders. It's a tree with no fruit. He cursed it, and it immediately withers. He's also showing the disciples his power. And not only is he able to heal and do these miracles, he also commands all of nature. That in a word, he can cause a tree to wither. That's a little terrifying. We all love the part of Jesus that says he's going to touch him, he's healing them. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing. But he also says a word and the tree dies. That's more like Revelation 19 when he comes back and speaks and all are slain. The devil's cast into the fire. Like that's like Jesus commands everything. Don't forget that. So he curses the fig tree, um, which is a foreshadowing that these leaders are corrupt. These leaders are wicked. These leaders are awful. And we see in verse 15 of 22, which is about all we're going to spend in chapter 22. He asked them the question about Caesar. And you see in chapter 22, this, this continuing back and forth. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They're all coming to him asking their version of faith. The Pharisees believe in um, eternal life. The Sadducees do not. So the Pharisees want to cause question. They cause him to, they want him to question Caesar. They want him to denounce Caesar. And if he denounces Caesar, then the Romans will kill him. The Sadducees come along and want him to denounce the word. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in eternity. They don't believe in life after death. So the Sadducees were kind of the eat, drink, and be merry, and live your life now, because when you only get one life, then you're going to die, so you be you. And so the Sadducees ask questions about the word, and he topples them. The scribes ask questions. The lawyers ask questions. So he shows back up in the temple. And that night that he went to Bethany, they've been plotting. We're going to get him. And so all these groups have prepared um, the enemy, my enemy is my friend kind of thing. The Pharisees, the scribes, they kind of get along. The Sadducees and Pharisees do not get along. The Pharisees skirt the, the edge of trying to have open revolt happening against the Roman Empire. They don't want Rome around, but they also work with them. So all of these things are, this is all of the people who have a stake in keeping things the way they are and believing they understand God. They all come together to attack Jesus. They plot to kill him. They plot to kill him. So all of 22 is very much this exchange. And you've seen this before. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? So they ask him um, the question of the coin. Like, who should, what should we do with the coin? Like, who's our king? And, but he's on the money. And so they played this game with Jesus, trying to get him to denounce Caesar. Then they could go, oh, centurion, he denounced the god king of Rome. Um, please kill him. They're slimy. They're unwilling to just take care of it themselves. But Jesus is smarter than that. Smartest man that's ever lived is Jesus. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? So this is a twofold thing. Jesus didn't have a denarius because he was humble and poor of stature. He asked the religious leaders, Oh, you're talking about money? Um, I don't have any. Do you happen to have some money? Well, of course we do. Yeah, I kind of figured you did. Right? He's kind of pulling one of those on them. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they let him and went away. Left him and went away. Like, we got him. He's going to deny. And they go, oh, oh, this guy's smarter than me. What am I going to do? 
You've all had those moments when you thought you were the smartest one in the room, and then someone shows up and they're smarter than you, and you're like, oh, I thought I was pretty cool. I made it in the who's who of American high school students book. You guys know the scam of that, right? You get a letter. Would you like to be, you've been nominated to be in the who's who of whatever. Pastors in America for 1995 will send you a book with, so you can have a copy of your name in it. So it's really just made up of all the people that put their, that paid the money. Like, come on, like, don't be. And I was the kid, senior in high school, put it on my like resume or my application. And you're like, then you find out when you're a little older that that's all just a game. You're like, I bet the application people just shook their head and giggled. Like another one duped by the system. But anyway, okay, sorry, that was for free. Um, Scripture always trumps the rule of man. Always. Scripture always trumps the rule of man. We live in a very, we, now think about the tension that Jesus lived in. If he had spoke out against Rome, we would have been dead. In the great land of the free and the brave in America, you speak out against the government, you get a TV show. Right? In other countries, you get killed. So we have to be careful when we kind of throw all, like Jesus is saying, he's advocating you you follow the scriptures, not just the rule of man. The Bible trumps the rule of man. Always. Yes, Romans 9 tells us, or Romans 13, sorry, tells us we're to follow the government. The government's been given to us as a gift. But if the government is causing you to capitulate your faith, to denounce your faith, to go against your faith, you cannot follow that. Will it lead to jail time? Will it lead to, maybe it could lead to those things. It could lead to businesses being lost. It could lead to all kinds of things. But you can't ever take the government over the scripture. Now here in this country, we kind of, it's hard for us to fathom that because we have a voice, we have our freedom, we do what we want. But if you've done any study of, of, of countries of the world, if you've ever done any travel, like it's very a very real threat to be a Christian and to say, I'm not doing what the government tells me. They'll just cut your arms off. They kill you. You're in the streets. We've seen in the last just couple of weeks, the reports out of Nigeria of how many Christians are being, I mean, right now, Christians are more persecuted than any group in the world, around the world. Now here in the U.S., what do you mean? There's a church in every corner, right? Like they're being persecuted all over the place. Thousands upon thousands of Christians are dying each and every year, and it's it, the persecution is greater than it ever was during the Roman Empire. But you still don't give in. When the government tells you to do things that go against the Scripture, then you take your lumps and you follow God's word. And so Jesus is just trying to tell them, like, I get it, Caesar's here, I get, but the Scriptures always always are more important than the government. Always. So we're Christians first, making politics second to our theology. Now, I'm not saying that we involved in politics. It would be amazing to see a bunch of Jesus-loving, Bible-reading people involved in politics. It doesn't mean that when it's time to pass a bill on a city ordinance, you're like, well, I don't know, Lord. Should I, should I pass that? Well, it says here that a fool is, you know, don't go to the Proverbs to decide whether to put the sewer in. That's not what we don't, the, the Bible is an answer book, but it doesn't answer everything. Now, you do lean in on the Holy Spirit. Is this a wise decision, a good use of money? Is this a good use of, you can bring your Christian faith into politics as a person. But you're not trying to create, like Jesus didn't try to set up a theocracy. Theocracies fail. When you force religion on people, it doesn't work. But it doesn't mean you can't constantly talk about religion. You can't let it be the fabric of who you are. If we forced all of you to do things, would you do them? Of course not. We're rebels at heart. 
I rebel against traffic laws. I'm like, really? How, why is that here? You're not supposed to do that. This is, this is a dumb place to put that. Or then I get real mad when other people rebel against traffic laws. It happened to me this week. I told you a couple weeks ago. I'm turning to take my kids to school. Someone comes from 22nd, and they go all the way into the left lane, turning right. I'm like, oh, if only I had a battering ram. But I prayed. I calmed down. I got over it. Okay, politics is important. And I, right now, I feel in our culture today, it's like the air we breathe. You can't turn on the TV without seeing something. But just take a breath. Take a deep breath. Talk to your grandparents if they're still around. Talk to your parents. Talk to some, read some articles from the 1940s and 1950s and see that people were just as mad about stuff back then as they are now. And it's all, we're all still here. Um, I wouldn't put so much weight into some vote that happens on a random Wednesday. God's going to take care of you. He's got you, no matter what comes. Okay. Into Matthew 23, verse 37. I'll try to land the plane fast. There's the woes to the church. In chapter 23, he starts with the woes. Woes to the scribes, woes to the blind guides, woes to all of the leaders that are going on. From 23.1 to 36 is Jesus saying, why have you messed with my people? He's angry. He's, he's, he's upset about how his people, his image bearers, have, have been taken astray. They've been taught wrong. They've been abused. They've been marginalized. He can't stand it. And then in verse 37, he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See your houses left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. So it's a foreshadowing of the temple being destroyed. That's the next verse too. And it's also, when I come back, you're not going to believe this. Woe to you. You won't believe I'm the Messiah until I come back as a king. And he's weeping over them. He's lamenting over them. If you would just open your eyes. If you would just open your eyes and see who I am. If you would just... If you knew the Torah that you say you know, if you would just look at it, I'm the, I'm the one. And you would fall on your knees. You would praise me. You would come to faith. You would, all these things, and they're, they're so set in their ways. I think this is a more clear indication of the heart of Christ and his love for us. And it also, I've been with some of you and you have had similar thoughts like this. Why doesn't she just get away from him? Why doesn't he just stop doing that? Why, why can't they just see? Why are they so belligerent about faith? Why do they reject Jesus? Why do they mock the cross? Why can't they? I just wish they would listen. I wish they'd open their, I wish they would just trust me. That's what he's doing. Just like all of us.